Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of The Christian Contrarian. I'm Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and this is episode 44 and continuing with the Nephilim Wars Part 3, the Eastern Campaign. And in the first two segments of this series, we talked about the Raphaim, who are the post-Diluvian giants, whereas the Nephilim seem to be the name of the antediluvian giants, and there's some sort of distinction, perhaps a little bit smaller and with less powers, but nonetheless giants. And an important aspect that's not covered by our churches when they're teaching about the exodus and in particularly the conquest of the promised land and so unless people understand who these various nations are that we're going to talk about a few more of them today that were occupying the covenant land then the whole context is lost in terms of what was going on and what was really taking place in terms of the war against the adversaries, which are the seen and the unseen, the visible ones and the invisible ones, and who are representing the rebellious angels on the earth. And that's why it's so important to understand who these Raphaim kings after the flood were. And the countries and nations that they began in and how that ripples down through history and into our time and into end time prophecy. So it's important to understand this. And in the first two segments, we covered the Amalekim battle at Rephidim and the impacts of what would have happened to Israel had they lost that war that Amalek, the son of Eliphaz, the son of Esau, would have inherited the covenant blessings, the covenant birthrights, and the Messiah prophecy that was handed down to Jacob in, and to Israel. And so this is, is always in play when we're talking about Israel and we're talking about the nations that are standing against them. And then we talked about the first battle to sort of gain some confidence and they went back to Atherim where, or Atherim where the spies had entered into the covenant land and had fought against King Arad from the Hebron area and sort of the epicenter of the Anakim and the giants like Telmai and Sheshai and Ahriman that are talked about in Numbers 1333 and or Numbers 13 and in other chapters as well. And so after the battle, they don't head north into, Israel doesn't head north into the covenant land, but they actually go back down and around and ask permission and, and are particularly instructed not to disrupt or cause a war or a battle or any sort of controversy with Edom or Ammon or Moab. And 
that has a significant sort of play and understanding of as to the context of what is taking place at this time. So mm -hmm. just sort of quickly, Ammon and Moab are the descendants of Lot. So related to Abraham, related to that whole family line. And Edom is, of course, the territory of Esau where they drove out the giants, just as Moab and Ammon drove out the giants. Parts of Edom, though, in the Horim districts and the Amalekim area, the giants remained, and that's who Eliphaz, father of Amalek, had married into to create the Aleph Duke kingdoms. And again, terms that you need to understand if you're going to understand the giant kingdoms. And so Israel is not instructed to war or take over these descendants of Abraham and Abraham's family with Lot. And so they march through and around and to the eastern side of the Jordan River where they're going to begin the eastern campaign. And this is going to be a series of battles. And this is, again, all before they enter even into the covenant land that's nested with Raphaim giants. And we get some details as to the start of this battle in, in the book of Numbers and beginning with uh, the battle with King Sihon. And then Numbers, of course, is followed by the book of Deuteronomy. And the start of this campaign, we get more detail in Deuteronomy 31 and a review of what had scared the Israelites by the embellished report of the disloyal spies and affirming that there are men taller than Israel, which are the hybrids, and that you have the Anakim that are in the covenant land. And then in Deuteronomy 2, which will present the start of the details to the Eastern campaign, you have an accounting of the land of giants, Deuteronomy 2.20. And also again in Deuteronomy 3.13, this is the land around Mount Hermon. This is the land of Bashan. These are the kingdoms where Sihon and Og reign from, the most powerful of the Raphaim kings. And that's not a coincidence in terms of why that is being presented to the reader in detail in Deuteronomy 2 with the various kinds of giants, whether or not it's the Anakim or it's the Zamzuzim or it is the Emim or it's the Horim all and the avim and the different kinds that are presented for the reader so that they understand who is being talked about at the start of this campaign just as we're in, we're told about even in the time of abraham you had the raphaim in that same region in the battle of giants the war of giants of eastern king giants and the middle east giants and you also have the Malachim and the Horim and the Zuzim that are also talked about as giants in Genesis 14. So as we roll forward to the conquest of the covenant land with Moses and Joshua leading, 
and Moses is still leading with Joshua second in command at this point in time, they're going to march into the land of Sihon, but they're also going to ask for permission to pass through. They're going to present an option to King Sihon to let them pass through because they want to eventually cross the Jordan and start the central campaign. But of course, in Joshua 11.20, we're told that even though Israel has asked, we're told in Joshua 11.20 that God was going to harden the hearts of all the kings and all of the nations that are standing in Israel's way and who are aligned to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. And so there's an alliance of three different groups of people in this campaign that we're going to talk about today that are standing against Israel before they enter the covenant land. And one of those nations will have a claim similar to the Amalekim, a little bit by a different route in terms of inheriting the blessings and the birthright in the Magianic promise that they think that they could actually get all of that if they wiped Israel from the face of the earth. And I'll get to that in the last part of the presentation today. So Sihon's heart is hardened. And he is not going to submit in any way to... Israel, who he considers an inferior being, worshiping an inferior God. And he is going to march out uh, with all of his army from all of his cities to war with Israel. And it actually says in, in the passages of number 21 in Deuteronomy 2 uh, that Sihon brought out all of his people to war with Israel. So he wasn't taking a chance in terms of let's just send out a few of our large giants and hybrid giants and scare them away. He knew the power of God and he knew that he was going to have to bring all of the weight of his empire. And this empire composed of many, 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 many cities. I, I tried to do a count. I don't get an exact number and I kind of stopped counting after 30 cities that were in King Sihon's sphere of influence. So a powerful, powerful king and allied with King Og and King Og is not going to enter into the battle at this time, um, but he will afterwards and we're going to get to him in, in a second. Typically, the military strategy of the giants was a pentapolis, five city-states that are the capitals of, uh, of the nation. And then you would have many unwalled villages and walled villages that are all part of the mice network of strategy that was a formidable defense. And so we don't get that firm number of the number of cities in terms of a pentapolis number, but I'm sure it would have been something like 40 cities or like eight pentapolis centers and then all of the villages uh, that were with them. And that would probably include maybe the Alvim and 
the Perizim, who were known for being more agricultural throughout the lands and nations of the of the Rephaim and lived in walled and unwalled villages as part of that mice network that we'll talk about in detail when we get to the Philistine War. And so this was a significant power, one of the great powers of that time. And this is who Israel is going to take on first and the battle takes place at a place called Yahaz, or Jahaz, depending on how you want to enunciate that. And the two main cities that Sihon ruled from were Heshbon and Aror. And he lived in Heshbon, but he had his reigning from Aror. So one would presume that that's where the religious center was, the capital of, of the religion that would have been part of the typical organizational structure of all the Rephaim nations, the daughters of Babylon, the pantheon of gods that they worshipped, and the Baalim that were predominant and the creators of the Rephaim. And so this is the army that the Israelites went up against. And they go up against them without the same fear and dread that they had beforehand, either when they fought the Amalekites or when they had uh, cowered with the reports of the Anakim giants and the hybrids, the taller people like amongst the Canaanites who intermixed with the Raphaim. This time they headed straight into battle with them. And a lot of people ask, you know, how could they win these battles with these giants? I mean, they had all of the military weapons of war. They had the chariots. They had the iron weapons. They had manufacturing facilities. And they had the numbers. These cities were mightier and greater than Israel, both in numbers, in size, in technology, and in weaponry. But there's one thing that God said that he would do for Israel is that he would go before them and he would bring them out and bring them up for slaughter. And how that was done, at least in part, is we're told in Exodus 23:28, Joshua 23 and Deuteronomy 7:20, is that these were there were hornets sent into probably, and I think it's kind of ironic, I would look at the hornets as the enemy of the bees or into the, into the high mentality, I guess is where I'm going with that. And they would absolutely haunt and, and drive the giants into a state of panic. For some reason, the amount of these hornets and the viciousness of these hornets and the weakness that somehow the Raphaim had to these hornets would send them into an utter state of confusion and panic and teed up for Israel to reasonably easily defeat them. And I'm not saying Israel didn't take losses because they did. And this was the tactic though that God had decided to use for Israel so that they could fight the battle, but fight it in a way where they could take on this 
superior size of army, the superior weaponry, and the superior size of the people in two different sizes. One are the Raphaim warriors and kings, and the other are the hybrids. So if you have, let's say, a Raphaim that is somewhere from, let's say, 9 to 12 or 13 feet, then you would have the hybrids that would be seven to nine feet. They would be smaller and they would be more numerous likely than the purebred Raphaim. And these are, these are the people that they went up with. And they slaughtered all of the army and then they took all of the cities in this battle. All of them, all 30 plus cities high-walled fortresses and when we look at the size and scope of that battle I mean I just can't sort of get my head around how big of a whooping that was to, to, to go out in one battle defeat one of the great giant empires of that period of time but that's what happened. And when we look at who King Sihon was reigning over, and this will go for the same as King Og, he was reigning over the Amorites. So what one sort of concludes on this, the Amorites are, are a hybrid nation. And in Genesis 14, this is the home of the Raphaim, and perhaps even some of the Zuzim who are also from Egypt, but the home of the Raphaim. So one presumes that in that battle in Genesis 14, most of the Raphaim are killed. And that's going to be important to understand of the original Raphaim when we get to King Og. But King Og and Sihon are ruling over the Amorites, the hybrids. And so they seem to have succeeded as kings, as Raphaim kings over the hybrids after most all of their Raphaim uh, of that area would have been wiped out. Now other Raphaim are vernacular names for the Avim and other nations and they're all over the covenant land but from this specific area this is now an area that is occupied by the Amorites with two Raphaim kings, Og and Sihon. And What happens after the battle is King Og, who is his ally, is absolutely sort of stunned and, and, and shocked by the size and the quickness of the defeat of King Sihon, who in Jewish legend is actually Og's brother. We don't get that scripturally, so we can't verify that, but they're closely related. We do know that. And so Og then, he brings out all of his army and he's going to war with Israel and he's going to avenge or try to avenge Og's loss. Now Og is an individual who is the last of the Raphaim and he's said to be the last of the Raphaim three times. So it's an important figure as being the last remnant or survivor of probably the original creation of Raphaim after the flood. And we get that in Joshua 13. 
um, starting in verse 11, in Joshua 12:4, and Deuteronomy 3:11. So three times we know he's the last of the Raphaim, and his bed is in Deuteronomy 3:11 is nine cubits long which depending on which length of a cubit you're going to use, whether or not it's a, a common 18 inch or a royal up to 21 inches, uh, that's going to be somewhere between 15 and 16 feet and probably closer to the, the, the 16 foot mark using a royal cubit at, because King Og is a king. And it is four cubits wide, so it's going to be six to seven feet wide, probably closer to seven feet wide. And the Raphaim had a height to width ratio of two to one versus an average human of three to one. So almost twice as wide, which is why you would have a wider bed. It makes sense with the height as well. So not just tall, but like a WWF wrestler or uh, an NFL lineman uh, or a weightlifter and with the size. And in Isaiah 25, we get the terrible ones who are the strong ones. And you, as you take that back to its Hebrew words, it's going to mean um, not only strong, but strong as in stout, strong as in wide and strong. So we get a scriptural backing to, to, to the width of these giants. And the bed was made of iron because wood would not support his weight. So you can imagine a, a, a being like Og of being somewhere between 12 to 15 feet tall. And his weight might have been 2,500 pounds. He's an absolute monster. And he lead, led all of his army out. And he had an army and an empire bigger than Sihon. He actually had 60 cities that had also had unwalled villages and walled villages that were working in that mice network. So he had 12 pentapolis centers that he was reigning from. And so he was at least, you know, a third bigger than Sihon's kingdom. And this is the massive army that he leads to battle against the Israelites with the same Amorites as hybrid warriors with them. And he is defeated absolutely utterly. And he and his sons are also slaughtered, just as with Sihon. And so in short order, you have two of the most powerful empires of the giants beat even before Israel crosses the Jordan. And the Amorites are part of the Mighty Seven, just as you have the Raphaim that are included in the original Mighty Seven along with the Perizim in Genesis 15, right after the War of Giants. No coincidence. The Bible is very, very detailed and all the details are important and the chronology of events is important to understand as it presents it to you so you understand the fuller context. And the mighty seven nations, mighty doesn't go back to gibberim, but goes back to another word that is just as scary. It is the words that is used throughout the mighty seven and the mighty nations that are talked about in Psalms 135 uh, led by 
Sihon and 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 Og and the other nations, but that mighty is the Hebrew word atzum. And there's two words that work in combination here, but the net effect of it is is these are bone crunching, powerful beings, and the bone crunching comes from the power of their paws or the power of their hands that they could crush the bones of the average human in their bare hands, let alone their adeptness of skill of war as the ultimate warrior beings. But there were no match for Israel and God's support with the hornets. And they're all teed up for defeat. And so after all this, one would think that they would be done at the Battle of Adrae with the Eastern Campaign. But there's some unfinished business that's left to be done. Another ally of Sihon and Og were the Midianites who had five kings of Pentapolis of Midianites, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba. And these were the dukes of Sihon. And these are probably connected to the dukes of Edom in Genesis 36 and the mighty men of Moab in Exodus 15. They're all talking about that same sort of group of hybrids and Rephaim. And of course, we have the lion men of Moab that are Gibberim and Nephilim, a different kind of Nephilim or Rephaim. And these are the Alephs, uh, the, the dukes, although it's a different word. Um, that is used for the Dukes of Sihon. I think it's used by the translators to use the same word Duke because it goes to the same sort of dynastic bloodline kingdoms that they had intermarried into just as Eliphaz of the Alephs of Edom intermarried with uh, the Horim and produced the Amalekim uh, and Malachite nation that fought against Israel in the Battle of Rephidim. And the Midianites descend from Abraham as well through one of Abraham's, or through Abraham's concubine, Keturah. And so they have skin in the game too. So like the Amalekim, if Israel is now wiped out from the face of the earth, and the Amalekites were not totally wiped from the face of the earth at this point in time, but had been beaten miserably, this would be an opportunity in their eyes to seize the blessings, the birthright, and the Masonic blessings to bring about a dragon antichrist messiah with the pedigree from Abraham and with those inheritance blessings and rights to lead the world away from God and take away the promise of the Messiah and the redemption of all of the saints so that the bride could not sit at the supper and that the Christians would not come about. All of this is at stake and this is what the forces fighting for the unseen ones, the invisible ones, the assembly of gods in Psalm 82 are doing in the physical world 
at the behest and guidance of the assembly of the Balim, who are probably governing from Mount Hermon, where King Og decided to take stake out his empire and probably inherited after Gen uh, the Genesis 14 war, which is why the Amorites were living there. But this is also the home that Enoch talks about where the 200 originally created the first of the, of the Nephilim in the antediluvian epoch. And all of this is going on. And this is the battle and the war that Israel takes on again before they enter into the covenant land. So the context of who they're fighting, where they're fighting, and the Midianites takes on a way larger role than most people would normally give the accounts credit for. And they're intimately connected with the giants' accounts that's recorded in Genesis 2 and Genesis 14. In fact, Genesis, uh, in fact, Deuteronomy 2 is the lead-in to most of the details on uh, the Eastern Campaign, even though you get that in, in, in Numbers as well, and then later again in, in, in um, Joshua. And they slew all of these five kings and they slew all of the males of the Midianites. And then they took the women captive and they burnt all of their cities. And so it's an enormous campaign. It's not something that Israel is going to stay and occupy because they have a generation of war ahead of them once they cross the Jordan. Some of that territory is going to become part of the land that Israel is going to keep. But they're never going to control all of it in that time. And that's going to come also back to haunt, particularly King David with the kingdom of Geshur uh, in the Bashan region. But I, it's a, that's another, another show for down the road. But understand, this was fought before, and this is the context that's around what's going on in the conquest. They're fighting nations that want to wipe Israel from the face of the earth so that humankind cannot receive their destiny through the Messiah. And this is just the start. And so the next episode, we're going to talk about crossing the Jordan and the central campaign as they start this generational war led by Joshua because Moses is not going to be permitted to cross the river. For events that had happened in the past, even with all the things that Moses did, he is not going to be permitted to cross into Israel. And he dies before Israel crosses the Jordan. And so if you want a little bit more detail on this, I do have a document on this. So get a hold of me through my website at the genesis6conspiracy.com. That's genesis6, the number 6conspiracy.com. And until next time, may God bless you abundantly and uh, looking forward to being with you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 